Okay? Um, and so it's fitting that he ends with these words. Oh, the depths of the riches and wisdom and knowledge of God. How unsearchable are his judgments and how inscrutable his ways. For who has known the mind of the Lord or who has been his counselor or who has given a gift to him that he might be repaid? For from him and through him and to him are all things. To him be the glory forever. Amen. And Father, we ask now that you take these words and that you inspire us from this text and other places in the scriptures that we will go as we seek now to discover the capstone of the great solas of Scripture, God's glory alone. Lord, we ask it, obviously, for your glory and for our good. In Jesus' name, amen. For the past several weeks now, we've been studying the essentials of the gospel. That's what the Reformers were trying to recover. And today, as we come to what's been known in church history as Reformation Sunday, talking about Martin Luther and others uh, recovering the gospel. I remind you that all of these are separate. We've gone over them individually, but they are all tied together, beginning with the foundation. What is our foundation upon which life and salvation rest? It is the Scripture alone. That is our authority. What must we do to be saved? Nothing but grace alone, salvation comes through that. What must I do? Faith alone, sola fide. What must I trust or who must I trust to be saved? Believed in nothing or no one else but Christ alone. We discovered that this last week. And then, in answer to the question, so what's the point? What's the point of salvation? What's the point of your life and mine? Salvation is for God's glory alone. That is our ultimate purpose. So let's ask the question. You see there are three parts of the outline. I've got several more things for you to fill in and some verses to go through before we celebrate the Lord's Supper together. What is the glory of God? And that is my dilemma today. I have wrestled with this. I have labored over this all week. How, how do you define, with human words, the undefinable? <laughs> how do you express the inexpressible? How do we squeeze what is infinite into finite words? It would be like... And this is small, really. It would be like trying to cram Mount Everest into a thimble. A couple of weeks ago, Jan and I had the opportunity to be in northern New Mexico and in uh, south-central Colorado. First time we've ever been there this time of year. And we wanted to, and, and it actually happened, where we were able to hit 
the uh, peak season for the change of the aspen trees and all manner of bushes and trees around that, but primarily the aspen. And, and we would be driving. I'm sure some of you have had this experience. We would be driving, and right in front of us was this scene of mountains and, and the, the beautiful gold, the golden hues of the aspen, and we would stop to try to capture that with a picture. And every time, without fail, usually it was Jan who hopped out by the side of the road and took a picture, and she was all excited until she got back in the car and we looked at it and said, Ooh, that just doesn't do it justice. That's almost the way God's glory is. Glory is above and beyond any kind of description or definition. Now, you've got to get a picture of this. Glory is not a thing like a tree or a mountain or a seashore. Because you, you can describe these things or you can take a picture and it would be a somewhat accurate representation, but it still doesn't do it justice. That's the way it is with God's glory. No painting, no picture, no words could ever capture. Another thing to realize, glory is not one of God's attributes. Like His majesty, like His omnipotence, or His omnipresence, or His omniscience. Glory is the perfection of of all of those taken together. It's kind of interesting as I looked through the scriptures and looked through different commentaries, scripture never really defines his glory, but it does describe it. And so I want you to go to a passage of scripture where we're just going to see some, again, some snippets. They're, they're, they're poor, pitiful pictures, but at least they will give you some idea of how vast and how glorious God is in everything that He is and everything that He does. Isaiah chapter 40. Let me get you to turn there. I'll put it up on the screen, I think. Um, Isaiah chapter 40, and we'll begin with verse 12. Uh, let's go back to that. Okay. I guess I did not put that. There it is, Isaiah 40. That will give you uh, uh, just something to look at as you're turning there. We're going to look at verse 12, verse 15, uh, verse 22, verse 18, and verse 25. And I want you to see how that in each one of these verses, these little sections, what, what he does, what the writer does is try to capture the glory of God. And first in verse 12, he's going to look at inanimate creation. So, again, just... Try to let this expand your thinking about how great and glorious God is. Isaiah chapter 40, verse 12. Here's what Isaiah asks. Who has measured the waters in the hollow of his hand? Now, I don't know about you, but how many times have you read through this passage of Scripture and really not stopped to try to get a picture of this. Now, first of all, this is not talking about the waters of the sea. This is talking about all of creation. Okay? How much water do you think is in 
the cosmos. A lot. That's exactly right. Okay. Well, here's the, the image that Isaiah says, that God cups his hand and is in the hollow of his hand are set all of the water in the universe without any of it sloshing out. He's that big. Look at the next phrase. And marked off the heavens with the span of his hand. You go from one end of the universe, not our solar system, not our galaxy. There are trillions of galaxies. In fact, scientists say something that is really, it's, it's really, it's not scientific, it's metaphysical. They say the universe could be infinite. So you go from infinity to infinity, and it says right here that God has marked off that distance with the span of his hand. He's enclosed the dust, now he gets down to our earth, to our world, enclosed the dust of his dust of the earth in a measure. You ever done some cooking, cooking and you got a measuring cup out? How much dust is there in the world? How much dirt is there in the world? There's a lot of dirt in your yard if you have young kids because they go out and they come back, you think, with all of it into your house. And it says God takes all of the dirt, all of the dust on the earth, and he measures it with a measuring cup or a bowl and weighed the mountains and scales and the hills in a balance. Take all of the mountains and the hills. Do, do you get an idea of how big th that Isaiah is picturing God? And yet it really, like I said before, it doesn't do it justice. Drop down to verse 15. Behold, now he goes to the nations. He's go, he goes from in a, inanimate to the nations, geopolitical nations, earthly nations. Behold, the nations are like a drop from a bucket, a little tiny drop of water. That's the nation. And are accounted as the dust on the scales. Behold, he takes up the coastlands like fine dust. I don't know. I don't. Let me stop here. Are you, are you struggling with trying to get a picture of the bigness? Have you ever been... A, I mean, just stunned by bigness. The bigness of the cosmos, the bigness of the universe, the bigness of the Grand Canyon, the bigness of a mountain and hill. I grew up in Arkansas. The bigness of a hill was a little above 2,000 feet, so not anything to compare with the bigness of the mountains of the Rockies and other places in the world. Many years ago, we, it was an interesting situation. That's for another story of how we got to know in phone conversations a man from England. I will not try to replicate his accent. And so he would call every once in a while. And uh, we were living in Plano, Texas at that time. I was a youth pastor. And anyway, we would confer, uh, con converse back and forth periodically with, with Dave Bostick. Then the day came when we were moving from Plano, Texas out to El Paso, Texas. Dave had no concept. He said, well, how far is that? I said, well, Dave, that's about 750 miles. It's about a 13-hour drive from El Paso to 
to Dallas, the Dallas area, and there was silence on the other end. He was stunned. And he said, literally, these were his words. He said, do you realize that that is the breadth and the length of England? And I said to Dave, do you realize that you drive for 13 hours from El Paso to Dallas and you've still got three hours to go to get out of Texas? He was stunned by the bigness. I'm going to ask this question at least two more times. And I'm going to make it as a statement. I'll ask the question in a minute. Christians are bored with God and they are bored with worship. I'm not talking about just what happens on a Sunday morning. I'm talking about your daily sense of awe because we have not considered the glory how great God is. Let me go on to the last one. He's talking about people in verse 22. It is he who sits above the circle of the earth and its inhabitants, that's us, are like grasshoppers. Who stretches out the heavens like a curtain? We have a bathroom curtain in one of our bathrooms and just push it back. Who, who does that to the heavens? God does and spreads them like a tent to dwell in, who brings princes to nothing and makes the rulers of the earth as emptiness. And that's why in both verse 13 and 25, we have these words, to whom then will you liken God or what likeness will you compare him? There is no comparison. Take the most, the most glorious thought the most beautiful thing, the most stunning thing that you have ever seen. Have you got it? H have you? This is interactive preaching. Okay, have you? Okay, good, good. At least one. And multiply that times infinity, and, and maybe, maybe then you've begun just to see a little bit about how glorious God is. Let me give you a, a, a definition. I think it was there somewhere. I, I don't necessarily want you to write this down. We said this a, a, a minute ago, but I want you to see it. God's glory encompasses the ultimate greatness, beauty, and perfection of all he is. It is his ultimate magnificence, renown, honor, and value, the luminescence of his presence. I, I found that definition to add to some of those other ones, and I was glad I found it because throughout the Scripture, that's kind of the way that he is seen. The, the, the cloud, his presence came down over the, the Ark of the Covenant. The Shekinah glory of God filled the temple. The luminescence of his presence. All of those things could be used to define the glory of God. Okay, let's go on. Why does God's glory matter? I started out with six things. And I thought we're taking the Lord's Supper today. So I'm going to have to abbreviate. So I'm going to give you three, okay? Why does God's glory matter? Number one, because God created his, this glorious world to point to his glory. I, I had the second one first until this morning, and then I realized this needs to come first. God created all that is around us for his glory 
and it took him six, five days to create that before he ever put man on this creation that he called glorious. Look around. Get off your iPhone and iPad long enough to look around and see the sunrise, and see the sunset, and see the storms and the trees and the flowers and the mountains, and to taste a steak. Unless you don't eat meat. A cauliflower steak, I guess. Not bad, but not as good as a steak. Kisses. Whether from a, a wife, a husband, grandchild. Hugs. Music. Everything that God has created was meant to point us to the only glory that will satisfy our hearts, and that's the glory of God. The psalmist said this, Shout for joy to God, all the earth. Sing to the glory of His name. Now, I... It could be that he's talking about people. I still think that he's talking about inanimate objects, all the earth. Sing to the glory of his name. Give him glorious praises. All the earth worships you and sings praises to you. They sing praises to your name. The heavens declare the glory of God. And the sky above proclaims his handiwork. And we say that, but I think sometimes we don't realize the implications of it. If that is true, those, those last phrases, then listen the next time, again, you go outside. And when you see that sunrise, when you see those stars twinkling, could it be, I don't know, but could it be that there is a song? You know, dogs can hear things that are above the frequency that humans have. Could it be that the stars and the heavens are literally singing and what you and I can't hear, the Bible says, God hears and He likes it. What if, when you go outside and you hear the birds singing, and scientists tell us that those tweets and chirps and other things are communication, they're mating calls or whatever, I wonder if the scientists don't really know everything about what God has created. I wonder if when you hear a bird, let out that little Twitter. I know I'm using social media language, but the birds had it before social media, okay? That I, I, I just wonder, I just wonder if you're hearing a tweet, 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 tweet. That didn't sound much like a bird. Okay, just to use your imagination. But I wonder if God is hearing, I praise you, God. And not a mating call. Maybe it is. But I wonder. 
When you see the wind whipping the trees around, I don't doubt. It says the trees of the fields will clap their hands. Everything. If we could just get a picture that everything in creation is praising God, even though the creation is groaning and, and is fallen and someday will be renewed, the new heavens and new earth, it's still praising God. I love Habakkuk 2.14. It's a promise. It's a, a future. It's an eschatological promise. It's a promise of what's to come in the future. The earth will be filled with the knowledge of the glory of the Lord as the waters cover the seas. By the way, do you know that's the best motivation for missions that there is? Thank you for all of you who've come up and said, we'll pray for you on your trip. You and Greg, Greg Rader and I are leaving tonight about 6.15 for Turkey. And uh, we get there tomorrow night, their time about 10.30. It's a long way, and so we'll be there this next week, be back uh, a week from Monday, the Lord willing, and uh, I thank you for praying for us, for giving all the things, but you know, why do we do this? Why do people go on mission trips? People say, well, love for people. That's a good motive, but the best motive is love for the glory of God, because people will disappoint you, they'll let you down, all the rest of that the thing that will keep missionaries on the field and keep people going back to, to the mission field, love for the glory of God. Now, as great as the signposts are, let's back up, as great as the signposts are out there to point us to God, remember they're only pointers. Paul Trepp gave a, a great illustration that, that I read this last week. I thought this is great. If you and your family were going to Disney World, okay, you're on your way to Disney World. 30 miles out, you see a marker on the side of the road. Disney World, and it's a very colorful marker. This way, and it has an arrow pointing you. You don't pull over and have your vacation at the marker. Okay? It's just a marker. It points you to your destination. All that is around us is designed to point us to God. So let me ask you this question. What can you do to be more aware of the glorious world that God has created for you and me to live in? Think about that. What can you do today to be more aware? Second thing. First of all, the, the, the heavens and the earth, all of the world speaks of the glory of God. But let me give you some insight, too. You and I are hardwired for God's, God's glory. We are created, listen, we are created with a glory hunger in our hearts. Isaiah, this is writing of the Israelites, but it applies to the church, to us. I will say to the north, give up. To the south, do not withhold. Bring my sons and daughters from afar, from the ends of the earth, everyone who is called by my name, whom I created for my, what? Glory, whom I formed and made. We were created. You know, philosophers and people will ask you, why are we here? Why are you here? Why do you exist 
Let me ask that as a question, the statement I made a minute ago that may not sound like it goes with these questions. Why are you here? Why do you exist? Why? Personalize this. Why are many of you, or at least some of you, bored in your Christian life? It's because you've forgotten what you were created for. Keech's Catechism, which is a restatement of the Westminster Confession of Faith, that's Presbyterian. I didn't want to make you stumble, so I gave you something Baptistic. They all say the same thing. What is the chief end of you and me? Don't keep that out at arm's length. It's the other guy down the street. Man's chief end is to what? No wonder we're bored. Throwing away our lives on stuff that doesn't get to His glory. And it says, and to enjoy Him forever? And the Puritans were sticking the muds? I think not. John Piper says you, you, could, you can make a world of difference in, in the lives of most Christians by changing a little preposition, the preposition and. Man's chief end is to glorify God by enjoying Him forever. God is most glorified in us when we are most satisfied in Him. Why? Because we are glory-oriented creatures. Animals are not. Why do I say that? Because animals live by instincts only to survive. People are attracted to glorious things like nature. We've talked about that before. Or drama. Or sports. Not a lot to glory about for some of us yesterday. Why are we attracted to those things? Because we're hardwired to be glory-oriented. We're designed for bigger and better things to chase after God's glory. In fact, in answer to the question, why are Christians bored? Uh, you know some of the answer to that. Romans 1, 21 through 23, the great exchange. For all they, they, although they knew God, they did not honor Him as God or give thanks to Him. They became futile in their thinking. Their foolish hearts were darkened. Claiming to be wise, they became fools and exchanged the glory of the immortal God for images resembling mortal be man and birds and animals and creeping things. And we're reminded, what is sin? Well, sin's doing bad things. Jim Jackson reminds us of this over and over again with his word picture of arrows missing the mark. What a word picture that is. Sin is this falling short of the glory of God. Now, now folks, again, it is not sinful to be attracted to glorious things, the things that God has given us. But you and I are going to chase something to fill our glory hunger. And the Reformers said this, this is what salvation is all about. Not that I exchange 
for lesser things that which is ultimate. Only God's glory will satisfy our hearts. And that's why a famous quote from Augustine is this, You have made us for yourself, O Lord, and our heart is restless until it rests in you. There's a third thing that I want to say under this. Here's what sin does. All have sinned and fallen short of the glory of God. Sin turns us into glory thieves. Hmm. Man was created to live in a glorious world and to exist in perfect harmony with a glorious God. You know what happened. Sin came in and corrupted the original design. Now you and I naturally desire to live for ourselves. Instead of living for the glory of God, we try to steal that glory for ourselves. We want to be the center of our own world. We take the credit for what only God can produce. We want to be king over our lives to establish our own kingdom. And sometimes to punish those who break our laws. We tell ourselves we're entitled to things we don't deserve. We complain whenever we get, we don't get what we want. And here's the bottom line. We, you hate to say it like this, but we really want others to worship us. Now, we're born again, and we're, we're being lifted out of that. But just look around. In my era, how many of you remember in 1966? Some of you are laughing. I wasn't even a thought in 66, you're saying. When John Lennon, sitting in a, a, a panel interview with the rest of the Beatles, said, we are more popular than Jesus. And Christianity is on decline. And in not too many years, rock and roll will replace Christianity as paramount. In our day, several years ago, a very popular singer by the name of Madonna said, I won't be happy until I'm as famous as God. Those are extreme examples of glory thievery. But let's look at the ultimate glory thief. Who was it? Satan. Isaiah, I will ascend to heaven above the stars of God. I will set my throne on high. I will sit on the mount of the assembly of far reaches of the north. I will ascend above the heights of the clouds. I will make myself like the most high. But it's easy for people to slip in that. Another, maybe you've heard this story, another glory thief was a guy by the name of King Herod. And he was great. He was a legend in his own mind. He might have thought, I'm more popular than Jesus. 
On an appointed day, Herod put on his royal robes, said to be a thing of splendor, took his seat on the throne, delivered an oration to him. Beware, preachers, delivering our orations and patting ourselves on the back, saying, didn't I do a good job? And especially is it dangerous when others tell you, you did a great job. The people were shouting the voice of a god, not a man. Now, it's rather interesting how quickly this happened. Immediately, an angel of the Lord struck him down. Why? He, he, he didn't give God the credit. He might have been a great order, but wouldn't it have been better to say, you know, thank you guys, but God gave me that skill, and I'm, I'm trying to use it for his glory. Whatever I do, I'm trying to use it for his glory. He didn't. He took it to himself. He was eaten by worms and breathed his last. That means he died. But John Lennon is dead. Christianity is alive. The word of God increased and multiplied. No glory thief is going to stop it. The question is, how have you, I, I don't know that you have, uh, how have you tried to rob God of his glory this week? Three things, and then we're going to take the Lord's Supper. And the last thing you see, the, the question, how do I live for God's glory alone? First of all, you glorify God by believing. If you're here today, you do not know Jesus Christ. You glorify God by turning away from your sin, repenting, so that you can receive the gift of salvation and be saved today. You glorify God by believing. But believer, you continue to glorify God by believing. Not only by coming to faith in Christ, but continuing to trust Him and His gospel for everything you need. Second thing, and this is so simple, it's based on everything that I said before, Seek God's glory and not your own. Set Him as number one. Remember what John Piper said, God is most glorified in us when we are most satisfied in Him. And then a third one that I, I really feel like that, that so many need to hear, see your troubles in the light of an eternity in glory. couple of verses, Romans 8, 18, for I consider, Paul was a man who knew suffering. He said, I consider that the sufferings of this present time are not worthy, worth comparing to the glory that is to be revealed to us. And we come back to our worldview statement, for from him, listen, what are you going through right now? From him are all things. And through Him. And ultimately to Him in whatever you are going through. Thomas Watson, again an old Puritan, said, We glorify God by being content in that state in which providence has placed us. Last week in my study I came across a fascinating thing. Shared it with the ladies at BSF on Tuesday. I was just just tracking it down uh, quickly. Do you know who the, uh, the most uh, published musician is of all time? It's 
not Elvis, not the Beatles, not Beethoven. And you look it up. He, he, he is, by, by anybody's standard, he is the greatest composer ever to live. Johann Sebastian Bach. But he was unknown after his death for about 100 years. A lot of his works were, were lost. Mendelssohn rediscovered him and got him on the map, so to speak. But Bach was a believer. And on most of what he did, he was one, he's the most prolific ever to write. And I love this. I knew one of these, but I didn't know the other. Whenever he would write, compose a piece, he would either spell it out or he would, he would put the Latin initials S-D-G at the end of every one of his pieces. You know what that means? What we've been talking about to the glory of God alone. I knew that, but I didn't know this. Before he would write a piece, he would put the initials, Latin initials, J.J. at the beginning. Latin for Jesu Huva. Help me, Jesus. Now, he was talented, but no wonder he could do what he did. Think about what it would mean for your life if before everything you did this week, every word you spoke, every deed you did, that you thought about, help me, Jesus. And then when you completed that word or that thought or that action, you signed it, God, this was to your glory alone. I told the ladies, I had this thought. I don't have any tattoos. But if I were ever to get tattoos, I've always wondered, what would I get? I know exactly what I'd get. On this arm, Hesu Huva to remind myself in everything that I do, Jesus, help me. And on this arm, soli deo gloria. One of the ladies in that class on Tuesday went home, and her husband, it was Rachel Nally, and her husband said, hey, we gave ourselves Sharpie tattoos. I saw them on Wednesday night. They had almost washed off. But I thought, man, that is so great. But more than having it written on your wrist, have it written on your heart. Father, we thank you that we can live for your glory alone. I pray now that as we partake of the Lord's Supper, we come together around the, the table of communion, that you would help us. And I pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. As the men... Come to their places and the singers.